Welcome to this Uvula audio bookcast presentation of Rip Foster Rides the Great Planet. Rip Foster will be simulcast on the adult and children's podcast streams at the same time. Rip Foster Rides the Great Planet was written by Harold Goodwin in 1952 under the name Blake Savage. Goodwin, you may remember, was also the author of Divers Down, which we presented a few months ago. The story, of course, is about Rip Foster, who is a recently commissioned lieutenant in the Planeteers, which is a military unit of space marines in the Federation of Free Governments. Earth is divided into two armed camps at this time in the future, the Federation of Free Governments and the Consolidation of People's Governments, or the Cons. If that does not sound like Star Trek's yings and comms, I don't know what does. The story proceeds with a very Cold War mentality also. An asteroid is discovered that consists of radioactive thorium and both sides want it. Rip is given command of a mission of planeteers to land on the asteroid and use carefully planted atomic explosions to shift it into an orbit that will take it to Earth for use by the Federation. The book is quite scientifically accurate for its time and rooted in real physics, and it has worn well, as you'll see. And now, Rip Foster rides the Great Planet. Chapter 1. SCN Scorpius, Spacebound. A thousand miles above Earth's surface, the great space platform sped from daylight into darkness. Once each two hours, it circled the Earth completely, spinning along through space like a mighty wheel of steel and plastic. Through a telescope from Earth, the platform seemed a lifeless, lonely disk, but within it, hundreds of spacemen and planeteers were about their work. In a ready room at the outer edge of the platform, a planetier officer faced a dozen slim, black-clad young men who wore the single golden orbits of lieutenants. This was a graduating class, already commissioned, having a final, informal get-together. The officer who wore the three-orbit insignia of a major was lean and trim. His hair was cropped short, like a gray fur skullcap. One cheek was marked with the crisp whiteness of an old radiation burn. Stand easy, he ordered briskly. The general instructions of the Special Order Squadrons say that it's my duty as senior officer to make a farewell speech. I intend to make a speech if it kills me, and you too. The dozen new officers facing him broke into grins. Major Joe Barris had been their friend, teacher, and senior officer during six long years of training on the space platform. He could no more make a formal speech than he could breathe high vacuum, and they all knew it. Lieutenant Richard Ingalls Peter Foster, whose initials had given him the nickname of Rip, asked, Why don't you sing us a song instead, Joe? Major Barris fixed Rip with a cold eye. Foster, three orbital turns, then front and center. Rip obediently spun around three times, then walked forward and stood at attention, trying to conceal his grin. Foster, what does SOS mean? Special Order Squadron, sir. Right. What else does it mean? Means help, sir. Right. And what else does it mean? Superman or simp, sir. This was a ceremony in which questions and answers never changed. It was supposed to make planeteer cadets and junior officers feel properly humble. But it didn't work. By tradition, the planeteers were the cockiest gang that had ever blasted through high vacuum. Major Barris shook his head sadly. You admit you're a simp, Foster? 
The rest of you are simps, too. But you don't believe it. You've finished six years on the platform. You've made a few little trips into outer space. You've landed on the moon a couple of times. So now you think you're seasoned space spooks. Well, you're not. You're simps. Rip stopped grinning. He had heard this before. It was part of the routine. But he sensed that this time, Joe Barris wasn't kidding. The Major rubbed the radiation scar on his cheek absently as he looked them over. They were like twelve chicks out of the same nest. They were all about the same size, a compact five-foot, eleven inches, 175 pounds. They wore loose tunics belted over full trousers, which gathered into white cruiser boots. The comfortable uniforms concealed any slight differences in build. The twelve were all lean of face, with hair cropped to the regulation half-inch. Rip was the only redhead among them. Sit down, Barris commanded. I'm going to make a farewell speech. Rip pulled a plastic stool toward him. The others did the same. Major Barris remained standing. Well, he began soberly, you are now officers of the Special Order Squadrons. You're planeteers. You are lieutenants by order of the Space Council, Federation of Free Governments, and space protect you to yourselves, your supermen. But never forget this. To ordinary spacemen, you're just plain simps. You're trouble in a black tunic. They have about as much use for you as they have for leaks in their airlocks. Some of the spacemen have been high vacuuming for 20 years or more, and they're tough. They're nasty as Callistan Tikal. They like to eat planeteer junior officers for breakfast. Lieutenant Philippe Flip Via said, we salt Joe. Major Barris sighed. No use trying to tell you space chicks anything. You're lieutenants now, and a lieutenant has the thickest skull of any rank, no matter what service he belongs to. Rip realized that Barris had not been joking, no matter how flippant his speech. Go ahead, he urged. Finish what you were going to say. Okay, I'll make it short. Then you can catch the terror rocket and take your eight Earth weeks leave. You won't really know what I'm talking about until you've batted around space for a while. All I have to say adds up to one thing. You won't like it, because it doesn't sound scientific. That doesn't mean it isn't good science, because it is. Just remember this. When you're in a jam, trust your hunch and not your head. The Twelve stared at him open-mouthed. For six years, they'd been taught to rely on scientific methods— now their best instructor and senior officer was telling them to do just the opposite. Rip started to object. Then he caught a glimmer of meaning. He stuck out his hand. Thanks, Joe. I hope we'll meet again. Barris grinned. We will, Rip. I'll ask for you as a platoon commander when they assign me to cleaning up the goopies on Ganymede. This was the Major's idea of the worst planeteer job in the solar system. The group shook hands all around. Then the young officers broke for the door on the run. The terror rocket was blasting off in five minutes, and they were due to be on it. Rip joined Flip Via, and they jumped on the high-speed track that would whisk them to Valve 2 on the other side of the platform. Their gear was already loaded. They only had to take seats on the rocket, and their six years on the space platform would be at an end. I wonder what it'll be like to get back to high gravity, Rip mused. The centrifugal force of the spinning platform acted as artificial gravity, but it was considerably less than Earth's. We probably won't be able to walk straight until we get our earth legs back, Flip answered. I wish I could stay in Colorado with you instead of going back to Mexico City, Rip. We could have a lot of fun in eight weeks. Rip nodded. 
Tough luck, Flip. But anyway, we have the same assignment. Both planeteers have been assigned to Special Order Squadron 4, which was attached to the cruiser Bolide. The cruiser was in high space, beyond the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn, doing comet research. They got off the track at Valve 2 and stepped through into the rocket's interior. Two seats just ahead of the fins were vacant, and they slid into them. Rip looked through the thick port beside him and saw the distinctive blue glow of a nuclear-drive cruiser sliding sternward toward the platform. Wave your ice docks at that job, Flip said admiringly. Wonder what he's doing here. The space platform was a refueling depot where conventional chemical fuel rockets topped off their tanks before flaming for space. The newer nuclear-drive cruisers had no need to stop. Their atomic piles needed new neutron sources only once in a few years. The voice horn in the rocket cabin sounded. The SCN Scorpius is passing valve 2, landing at valve 8. I thought that ship was with Squadron 1 on Mercury, Rip recalled. I wonder why they pulled it back here. Flip had no chance to reply because the chief rocket officer took up his station at the valve and began to call the roll. Rip answered to his name. The rocket officer finished the roll, then announced, Buttoning up in 20 seconds. Blast off in 45. Don't bother with acceleration harness. We'll free fall, with just enough flame going for control. The 10-second warning bell sounded, and before the bell had ceased, the voice horn blasted. Get it. Foster, R.I.P. Lieutenant, report to the platform commander. Show exhaust! Rip leaped to his feet. Hold on, Flip. I'll see what the old man wants and be right back. Get flaming! Show an exhaust like the man said. This bucket leaves on time, and we're sealing the port! Rip hesitated. The rocket would leave without him. Flip said urgently, You better ram it, Rip! He knew he had no choice. Tell my folks I'll make the next rocket, he called, and he ran. He leapt through the valve and jumped for the high-speed track and was whisked around the rim of the space platform. He had a hand through his short red hair, a gesture of bewilderment. His records had cleared. So far as he knew, all his papers were in order, and he had his next assignment. He couldn't figure out why the platform commander would want to see him. But the horn had called shown exhaust, which meant to get there in a hurry. He jumped off the track at the main cross run and hurried through the center of the platform. In a moment, he stood before the platform commander's door, waiting to be identified. The door swung open, and a junior officer in the blue tunic and trousers of a spaceman motioned him to the inner room. Go in, Lieutenant. Thank you. He hurried into the commander's room and stood at attention. Commander Jensen, the Norwegian spaceman who had commanded the platform since before Rip's arrival as a raw cadet, was dictating into his command relay circuit. As he spoke, printed copies were being received in the Platform Personnel Office, Special Order Squadron Headquarters on Earth, aboard the cruiser Bolide in high space, and aboard the newly landed space cruiser Scorpius. Rip listened, spellbound. Foster, R.I.P. Lieutenant, S.O.S. Serial number, 943. Assigned S.O.S. 4. Change orders effective this date and time. Cancel Earth leave. Subject officer will report to Commander S.C.N. Scorpius with detachment of nine men. Senior non-commissioned officer and second-in-command, Koa, A.P. Sergeant Major, S.O.S. Serial number 
1-800-333-3941. Commander Scorpius will transport detachment to coordinates given in basic cruiser Astro Course, delivering orders to detachment en route. Take full steps for maximum security. This is Federation Priority A, Space Council Security Procedures. Rip swallowed hard. The highest possible priority, given by the Federation itself, had canceled his leave. Not only that, but the cruiser to which he was assigned was instructed to follow Space Council security procedures, which meant the job, whatever it was, was rated even more urgent than secret. Commander Jensen looked up and saw Rip. He snapped. Did you get all that? Yes, sir. You'll get written copies on the cruiser. Now flame out of here. Collect your men and get aboard. The Scorpius leaves in five minutes. Rip ran. The realization hit him that the big nuclear cruiser had stopped at the platform for the sole purpose of collecting him and nine enlisted planeteers. The low gravity helped him cover the hundred yards to the personnel office in five leaps. He swung to a stop by grabbing the push bar of the office door. He yelled at the enlisted spaceman on duty. Where do I find nine men? The spaceman looked at him vacantly. What for? You got a requisition, Lieutenant? Never mind requisitions, Rip snapped. I've got to find nine planeteers and get them on the Scorpius before it flames out of here. The spaceman's face cleared. Oh, you mean Koa's detachment. They left a few minutes ago. Where? Where did they go? The spaceman shrugged. The doings of planeteers were no concern of his. His shrug said so. Rip realized there was no use talking further. He ran down the long corridor toward the outer edge of the platform. The enlisted men's squadrons were near Valve 10. So was the supply department. His gear had departed on the Terra rocket, and he couldn't go to space with only the tunic on his back. He swung to the high-speed track and braced himself as it spent him along the platform's rim. There was no moving track inward to the enlisted planeteer squad rooms. He legged it down the corridor in long leaps, muttering apologies as blue-clad spacemen and cadets moved to the wall to let him pass. The squad rooms were on two levels. He looked in the upper ones and found them deserted. The squads were on duty somewhere. He ran for the ladder to the lower level, took the wrong one, and ended up in a snapper boat port. He had trained in the deadly little fighting rockets, and they never failed to interest him. But there wasn't time to admire them now. He went back up the ladder with two strong heaves and found the right ladder and dropped down without touching. His knees flexed up to take the shock. He came out of the crouch facing a black-clad planeteer sergeant who snapped to rigid attention. Koa, Rip barked. Where can I find him? He's not here, sir. He and eight men left 15 minutes ago. I don't know where they went, sir. Rip shot a worried glance at his wrist chronometer. He had two minutes left before the cruisers departed. No more time now to search for his men. He hoped the sergeant major had sense enough to be waiting at some sensible place. He went up the ladder hand over hand and sped down the corridor to the supply room. The spaceman, first class, in charge of supplies, was turning an audio mag through a hand viewer, chuckling at the cartoons. At the sight of Rip's flushed, anxious face, he dropped the magazine. Yes, sir. I need a SPAC, full gear, including bubble. Yes, sir. The spaceman looked him over with a practiced eye. One full space pack. That would be medium-large, right, sir? Correct. Rip took the counter stylus and inscribed his name, serial number, and signature on the blank plastic sheet. Gears whirred as the data was recorded. 
The spaceman vanished into an inner room and reappeared in a moment lugging a plastic case called a space pack, or SPAC for short. It contained complete personal equipment for space travel. Rip grabbed it. Fast service, thanks, Rocky. All spacemen were called Rocky if you didn't know their names. It was an abbreviation for Rocketeer, a title all of them had once carried. Valve 8 was some distance away. Rip decided a cross ramp would be faster than the moving track. He swung the SPAC to his shoulder and made his legs go. Seconds were ticking off, and he had an idea that the Scorpius would make space on time, whether or not he arrived. He lengthened his stride and rounded a turn by going right up the wall, using a powerful leg thrust against a ventilator tube for momentum. He passed an observation port as he reached the platform rim and caught a glimpse of ruddy rocket exhaust flames outlined against the dark curve of Earth. That would be the Terra rocket, making its controlled fall to home with flip aboard. Without slowing, he leapt across the high-speed track, narrowly missing a senior space officer. He shouted his apologies and gained entrance to Valve 8 just as the high buzz of the radiation warning sounded, signaling a nuclear drive cruiser preparing to take off. Nine faces of assorted colors and expressions turned to him. He had a quick impression of black tunics and trousers. He had found his detachment. Without slowing, he called, Follow me. The cruiser's safety officer had been keeping an eye on the clock. His forehead creased in a frown as he saw that only a few seconds remained to departure time. He walked to the valve opening and looked out. If his passengers were not in sight, he would have to reset the clock. Rip went through the valve opening at top speed. He crashed head-on into the safety officer. The safety officer was driven across the deck, his arms pumping for balance. He grabbed at the nearest thing, which happened to be the deputy cruiser commander. The preset control clock reached firing time. The valve slid shut, and the takeoff bell reverberated through the ship. And so it happened that the spacemen of the SCN Scorpius turned their valves through their controls and disengaged their boron control rods, and the great cruiser flashed into space, while the deputy commander and the safety officer were completely tangled with a very flustered and unhappy new planeteer officer. Sergeant Major Koa and his men had made it before the valve closed. Koa, a seven-foot Hawaiian, took in the situation and said crisply in a voice all could hear, I'll bust the bubble of any son of a space sausage who laughs. Chapter 2. Rake That Radiation the deputy officer and the safety officer got entangled and hurried to their posts with no more than black looks at Rip. He got to his feet, his face crimson with embarrassment. A fine entrance for a planeteer officer, especially one on his first orders. Around him, the spacemen were settling in their acceleration seats or snapping belts to safety hooks. From the direction of the stern came a rising roar as liquid methane dropped into the blast tubes flaming into pure carbon and hydrogen under the terrible heat of the atomic drive. Rip had to lean against the acceleration. Fighting for balance, he picked up his SPAC and made his way to the nine enlisted planeteers. They had braced against the ship's drive by sitting with backs against bulkheads or by lying flat on the magnesium deck. Sergeant Major Koa was seated against a vertical brace. His brown face wreathed in a grin as he waited for his new officer. Rip looked him over carefully. There was a saying among the planeteers that an officer was only as good as his senior sergeant. Koa's looks were reassuring. His face was good-humored, but he had a solid jaw with a mouth 
that could get tough when necessary. Rip wondered a little at his size, though. Big men didn't usually go into space. They were too subject to space sickness. Koa must have been a special case. Rip slid to the floor next to the sergeant major and stuck out his hand. He sensed the strength in Koa's big fist as it closed over his. Koa said, Sir, that was the best fleetel I've ever seen an earthling make. You been on Venus? Rip eyed him suspiciously, wondering if the big planeteer was laughing at him. Koa was grinning, but it was a friendly grin. What is a fleetel? Rip demanded. And I've never been to Venus. It's the way the waterhole people fight. Koa explained. They're like a bunch of rubber balls when they get to fighting. They ram each other with their heads. Rip searched his memory for data on Venus. He couldn't remember any mention of fleetling. Venusians, if his memory was right, had a sort of blowgun as a main weapon. And he told Koa so. The sergeant major nodded. That's when they mean business, lieutenant. Fleetling is more like us fighting with our fists. Sort of a sport. Great cosmos. The way they dive at each other is something to see. Rip grinned. I didn't know I was going to fleetle those officers. It isn't the way I usually enter a cruiser. I suppose I ought to report to somebody. Koa shook his head. No use, sir. You can't walk around very well until the ship reaches Brenschluss. Besides, you won't find any space officers who'll talk to you. Rip stared. Why not? Because we're planeteers. They give us the treatment. They always do. When the commander of this bucket gets good and ready, he'll send for you. Until then, we might as well take it easy. He pulled a bar of Venusian true from his pocket. Have some. It'll make breathing easier. The terrific acceleration made breathing a little uncomfortable, but it wasn't too bad. The chief effect was to make Rip feel as though a ton of invisible feathers were crushing him against the vertical brace. He accepted a bite of the bittersweet vegetable candy and munched thoughtfully, Koa seemed to take it for granted that the spacemen would give them a rough time. He asked, Aren't there any spacemen who get along with the special order squadrons? Never met one. Koa chewed his shrew. And I was on the Icarus when the whole thing started. Rip looked at him in surprise. Koa didn't seem that old. The bad feeling between spacemen and the special order squadrons has started about 18 years ago, when the cruiser Icarus had taken the first planeteers to Mercury. He reviewed the history of the expedition. The spaceman's job had been to land the newly created Special Order Squadron on the hot planet. The job of the squadron was to explore it. Somehow, confusion developed, and the spacemen, including the officers, later reported that the squadron had instructed them to land on the sunny side of Mercury, which would have destroyed the spaceship and its crew, or so they believed at the time. The commanding officer of the squadron denied issuing such an order. He said his instructions were to land as close to the sun side as possible, but not on it. Whatever the truth, and Rip believed the SOS version, of course, the crew of the Icarus mutinied, or tried to. They made landing on Mercury with squadron guns pointed at their heads. Of course, they found that a sun side landing wouldn't have hurt the ship. The whole affair was pretty well hushed up, but it produced bad feelings between the special order squadrons and the spacemen. Trigger-happy space bums, the spacemen called them and much worse besides. The men of the Special Order Squadrons, searching for a handy nickname, had called themselves Planeteers, because most of their work was on the planets. As Major Joe Barris told the officers of Rip's class, You might say that spacemen own space, but we Planeteers own everything solid that's found in it. The Planeteers were the specialists, 
in science, exploration, colonization, and fighting. The spacemen carried them back and forth, kept them supplied, and handled their message traffic. The planeteers did the hard work and the important work, or so they believed. To become a planeteer, a recruit had to pass rigid intelligence, physical, aptitude, and psychological tests. Less than 15 out of 100 who applied were chosen. Then there were two years of hard training on the space platform and the moon before a recruit was finally accepted as a planetier private. Out of each 15 who started training, an average of five fell by the wayside. For planetier officers, the requirements were even tougher. Only one out of each 500 applicants finally received a commission. Six years of training made them proficient in techniques of exploration, fighting, rocketeering, and both navigation and astrogation. In addition, each became a full-fledged specialist in one field of science. Rip's specialty was astrophysics. Sergeant Major Koa continued, That business on the Icarus started the war, but both sides have been feeding it ever since. I have to admit that we planeteers lorded over the spacemen like we were old man Cosmos himself, so they get back at us with dirty little tricks while we're on their ships. We command on the planets, but they command in space and they sure get a great big nuclear charge out of commanding us to do the dirty work. We'll take whatever they hand us, Rip assured him, and pretend we like it fine. He gestured to the other planeteers. Tell me about the men, Koa. They're a fine bunch, sir. I hadn't picked them myself. The one with the white hair is Corporal Niels Pedersen. He's a Swede. I served with him at Marsport. He's a real tough space spickeroo in a fight. The other corporal... He's little Paulo Santos. He's a Filipino, and the best snapper boat gunner you ever saw. He pointed out the six privates. Kemp and Doust were Americans. Bradshaw was an Englishman. Trudeau, a Frenchman. Domenico, an Italian. And Nunez, a Brazilian. Ripped like their looks. They were as relaxed as acceleration would allow, but you got the impression that they would leap into action in a microsecond if the word was given. He couldn't imagine what kind of assignment was waiting, but he was satisfied with his planeteers. They looked capable of anything. He made himself as comfortable as possible and encouraged Koa to talk about his service in the Special Order Squadrons. Koa had plenty to tell, and he talked interestingly. Rip learned that the Big Hawaiian had been to every planet in the system, had fought the Venusians on the Central Desert, and had mined Nuclite with SOS-1 on Mercury. He also found that Koa was one of the 17 pure-blooded Hawaiians left. During the three hours that acceleration kept them from moving around the ship, Rip got a new view of space and of service with the SOS. It was the view of a planeteer who had spent years around the solar system. I'm glad they got you assigned to me, Rip told Koa frankly. This is my first job, and I'll be pretty green, no matter what it is. I'll depend on you for a lot of things. To his surprise, Koa thrust out his hand. Shake, Lieutenant. His grin showed strong white teeth. You're the first junior officer I ever met who admitted he didn't know everything about everything. You can depend on me, sir. I won't steer you into any meteor swarms. Koa had half turned to shake hands. Suddenly he spun around, his head banged against the deck. Rip felt a surge of loosened muscles that had been braced against acceleration. At the same time, silence flooded in on them with an almost physical shock. He murmured, Brenchless, and the murmur was like a trumpet blast. The Scorpius had reached velocity, and the nuclear drive had cut out. From terrific acceleration, they had dropped to zero. The ship was making high speed, 
but velocity couldn't be felt. For the moment, the men were weightless. A nearby spaceman had heard Rip's comment. He spoke in an undertone to the man nearest. His voice was pitched low enough so Rip couldn't object officially, but loud enough to be heard. Get this, gang. The planeteer officer knows what wrenchless is. He doesn't look old enough to know which end his bubble goes on. Rip started to his feet, but Koa's hand on his arm restrained him. With a violent kick, the big sergeant major shot through the air. His line of flight took him by the spaceman, and somehow their arms got linked. The spaceman was jerked from his post, and the two came to a stop against the ceiling. Koa's voice echoed through the ship. Sorry, I'm not used to no weight. Didn't mean to grab you. Here, I'll help you back to your post. He whirled the weightless spaceman like a bag of feathers and slung him through the air. The force of the action only flattened Koa against the ceiling. But the hapless spaceman shot forward head first and landed with a clang against the bulkhead. He didn't hit hard enough to break any bones, but he would carry a bump on his head for a day or two. Koa's voice floated after him. Great cosmos! I sure am sorry, spaceman. I guess I don't know my own strength. He kicked away from the ceiling, landing accurately at Rip's side. He added in a clear voice all could hear, They sure are a nice gang, these spacemen. They never say anything about planeteers. No spaceman answered, but Koa's meaning was clear. No spaceman had better say anything about the planeteers. Rip saw the deputy commander and the safety officer had appeared not to notice the incident. Technically, there was no reason for an officer to take action. It had all been an accident. He smiled. There was a lot he was going to learn about dealing with spacemen, a lot Koa evidently knew very well indeed. Suddenly, he began to feel weight. The ship was going into rotation. The feeling increased until he felt normally heavy again. There was no other sensation, even though the space cruiser now was spinning on its own axis through space at unaltered speed. The centrifugal force produced by the spinning gave them an artificial gravity. Now that he thought about it, Brenschluss had come pretty early. The trip apparently was going to be a short one. Brenschluss. Funny he thought how words stay on in a language even after their original meaning has changed. Brenschluss was German for burnout. It was rocket talk, and it meant the moment when all the fuel in a rocket burned out. It had come into common use because the English burnout could also mean that the engine itself had burned out. The German word meant only the one thing. Now, in nuclear drive ships, the same word was used for the moment when the power was cut off. Words interested him. He started to mention it to Koa just as the telescreen lit up. An officer's face appeared. Send that planetary officer to the commander, the face said. Tell him to show an exhaust. Rip called instantly to the safety officer. Where's his office? The safety officer motioned to a spaceman. Show him, Nelson. Rip followed the spaceman through a maze of passages, growing more weightless with each step. The closer to the center of the ship they came, the less he weighed. He was pulling himself along by plastic pull cords when they finally reached the door marked Commander. The spaceman left without a word or a salute. Rip pushed the lock bar and pulled himself in by grabbing the door frame. He couldn't help thinking it was a rather undignified way to make an entrance. Seated in an acceleration chair, a safety belt across his middle, was Space Commander Kevin O'Brien, an Irishman out of Dublin. He was short, as compact as a retro rocket, and obviously unfriendly. He had a mathematically squared jaw, a lopsided nose, green eyes, and sandy hair. He spoke with a pronounced Irish brogue. 
Rip started to announce his name and rank and the fact that he was reporting as ordered. Commander O'Brien brushed his words aside and stated flatly, You're a planeteer. I don't like planeteers. Rip didn't know what to say, so he kept still. But sharp anger was rising inside him. O'Brien went on. Instructions say I'm to hand you your orders en route. They don't say when. I'll decide that. Until I do decide, I have a job for you and your men. Do you know anything about nuclear physics? Rip's eyes narrowed. He said cautiously, A little, sir. I'll assume you know nothing, Foster. The designation SCN means space cruiser, nuclear. This ship is powered by a nuclear reactor. In other words, an atomic pile. You heard of one. Rip controlled his voice, but his red hair stood on end with anger. O'Brien was deliberately insulting. This was stuff any new planeteer recruit knew. I've heard, sir. Fine. It's more than I expected. Well, Foster, a nuclear reactor produces heat. Lots of heat. We use that heat to turn a chemical called methane into its component parts. Methane is known as marsh gas, Foster. I wouldn't expect a planetier to know that. It's composed of carbon and hydrogen. When we pump it into the heat coils of the reactor, it breaks down and creates a gas that burns and drives us through space. But that isn't all it does. Rip had an idea of what was coming, and he didn't like it. Nor did he like Commander O'Brien. It was not until much later that he learned that O'Brien had been on his way to Terra to see his family for the first time in four years, when the cruiser's orders had been changed. To the commander, whose assignments had been made necessary by the needs of the Special Orders Squadron, it was too much. So he took his disappointment out on the nearest planeteer, who just happened to be Rip. The gases go through tubes, O'Brien went on. A little nuclear material also leaks into the tubes. The tubes get coated with carbon, Foster. They also get coated with nuclear fuel. We use thorium. Thorium is radioactive. I won't give you a lecture on radioactivity, Foster, but thorium mostly gives off the kind of radiation known as alpha particles. Alpha is not dangerous unless breathed or eaten. It won't go through clothes or skin, but when mixed with fine carbon, thorium-alpha contamination makes a mess. It's a dirty mess, Foster. So dirty, I don't want my spacemen to fool with it. I want you to take care of it instead, O'Brien said. You and your men. The deputy commander will assign you a squadron. Settle in, then draw equipment from the supply room and get going. When I want to talk to you again, I'll call for you. Now blast off, lieutenant, and rake that radiation. Rake it clean. Rip forced a bright and friendly smile. Yes, sir, he said sweetly. We'll rake it so clean you can see your face in it, sir. He paused and added politely, If you don't mind looking at your face, sir, to see how clean the tubes are, I mean. Rip turned and got out of there. Koa was waiting in the passageway outside. Rip told him what had happened, mimicking O'Brien's Irish accent. The sergeant major shook his head sadly. This is what I meant, lieutenant. Cruisers don't clean their tubes more than once in ten accelerations. The commander is just thinking up dirty work for us to do, like I said. Never mind, Rip told him. Let's find our squad room and get settled, and draw some protective clothing and equipment. We'll clean his tubes for him. Our turn will come later. He remembered the last thing Joe Barris had said only a few hours before, and Joe was right, he thought. To ourselves, we're supermen, but to the spacemen, we're just simps. Evidently, O'Brien was the kind of space officer who ate planeteers for breakfast. 
Rip thought of the way the commander had turned red with rage at that crack about his face and resolved, He may eat me for breakfast, but I'm going to try to be a good, tough mouthful. <laughs>